Well, as you know, uh, as I've announced previously, I wanted to take this Sunday uh, to answer some of the questions that have arisen in response to the teaching through 1 Thessalonians, specifically 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Uh, as as uh, you know from our previous studies over the past several weeks, this is a, a text, a paragraph, these verses in chapter 4, uh, are a text is a text that is rich with eschatological significance. Eschatology, the, the word eschatology comes from the Greek term eschatos, which has to do with the last things. And so eschatology is the study of the last things. And when we worked verse by verse through that paragraph, obviously it raises a lot of questions about how the details of 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, 13 to 18, fit within a broader understanding of God's plan for the future. And so I wanted to take this, uh, this particular Sunday and, and spend it, rather than going through the text specifically or the next text, chapter 5, uh, to answer some of the questions that have arisen in response to Paul's teaching on the resurrection of the church and, and the rapture of the church. So I'm entitling this Resurrection and the Rapture, Questions and Answers. And uh, I will have slides for these, and that was one of the reasons for asking you ahead of time to send me the questions so that I could put some of this on the screen, which will be helpful because there is a lot of information and how we associate Certain details with the rest of Scripture is really helpful to also see visually. And also I wanted to say that this will be online. So if you go to gracechurch.org, go to the commissioned website, or webpage, I should say, and, and the sermons are there, and you'll be able to download these slides as well. We may not be able to get through all the questions that have been asked, so the ones that we don't get to will be uh, on, the, uh, uh, on the website. So you can turn there later. Uh, And also, I I will say this, I won't get through all the questions that were sent to me uh, for one reason uh, especially, and that is some of them had to do more with what happens after the rapture and the resurrection of the church. They have more to do specifically with details related to the day of the Lord, the tribulation period. And beginning next Sunday, we'll get into the next section in Paul's letter, 1 Thessalonians 5, and there's a section in which Paul deals with that time in the future. It's in verses 1 to 11 of chapter 5, and so I'm going to be preaching through that, and so some of the the answers to your questions will be handled in that text as we go through it, and then again, I will have another Q&A time after we finish that next important eschatological text where I'll try to answer any additional questions related to things pertaining to the the, uh, tribulation period and the uh, millennial kingdom. Let's get into these questions. The first one that I want to answer, and it's a great one to start off with, is this. What is the position of Grace Community Church and the Master's Seminary on the timing of the rapture? Do we have a position on this? Is this something that we as elders have worked on and articulated and hold to and, and that we treat as the standard for our teaching? And the answer to that is, is yes. We do have a position on this. Now, I'll, I will uh, alert you to a very important document that we have, a statement of faith. It's called What We Teach. You can find it on the website. I've got the link up there. But if you look on the, on the website for this statement, this doctrinal statement, 
we have a section in that statement pertaining to eschatology, and I wanted to read that because I think it is helpful and it helps to systematize some of the things that we've been talking about with respect to 1 Thessalonians 4 with other portions of Scripture. So let me read through this. The section on the rapture of the church. We, that is the elders here at Grace Church, teach the personal bodily return of our Lord Jesus Christ before the seven-year tribulation to translate his church from this earth and between this event and his glorious return with his saints to reward believers according to their works. So that is a summary, a concise summary of our view of the rapture and what immediately happens surrounding the rapture and immediately after. So I, I, I want to put this up on a graph as well to help you understand the, the chronology or the sequence of events that are related to the rapture. So if you see this white line, just consider that to be a timeline of history. It's important to understand that the, the age that we're currently in right now is what we call the church age. It is the age that began specifically on the day of Pentecost, a new age in God's redemptive activity, a new outworking of his plan that began on that day in Acts chapter 2, as we have recorded for us, of the age of the church. Specifically, we would call this the in Christ age. That when we look at the phrase, which is so abundant in the New Testament, particularly in the writings of Paul, this is a phrase to be in Christ that is unique to the church. It describes our present era, describes the redemptive work of God in the current era after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Even in 1 Thessalonians, we find reference to this church era. So, for example, if we look right at the beginning of the letter in verse 1, we find that Paul writes, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, he writes specifically, notice how he describes this church, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, uh, that is the description that we are still in today. We, as a church at, here at Grace Community, if Paul was writing to us, it would be the church of Grace Community, church of Sun Valley, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the in Christ age. It is also an, an age that is marked by expectation. Christ is not physically present among us, and we are not physically present with him. We are in him, but that is a, a, what we call a spiritual union, a, a union that we enjoy spiritually, but not in its ultimate fullness. And so, as a church, we expect, we're in anticipation of that time when we can be together with Christ, and we find that again with the Thessalonians. Look at chapter 1, verse 10 in particular, where Paul describes their conversion, and he describes them in chapter 1, verse 10, as waiting, waiting for his Son from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now, this age is the age where we are given the task of the Great Commission. It is an age in which the gospel is heralded to the nations, heralded to the ends of the earth, to believe the gospel, 
to repent and place faith in Jesus Christ and be incorporated into him. But as we discussed, or as I read in that doctrinal statement, and as we studied in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this church age comes to an end. And it comes to an end in what we have studied, it comes to an end in the resurrection of the dead in Christ and the rapture of the living in Christ together to meet Christ in the air and to forever be with him. Now that section that we studied, particularly verses 16 and 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4, brings to an end the current era of of, of the church. It brings to an end this in Christ era. As I said, 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 16 to 17 says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Notice it's the dead in Christ. There's a very important descriptor there that we cannot ignore. It's the dead in Christ, church age, deceased believers. Then we who are alive, we who are in Christ and alive and remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Now there is an important Uh, an important event that takes place immediately after the rapture and and an important purpose for the rapture that occurs. And we read that in that doctrinal statement. And that is the presentation of the church in its purity as well as the distribution of rewards. Now, this is something that we as believers don't often think of, and it's to uh, to our shame that we don't often think of this rich biblical teaching. The scriptures do have a, 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 uh, a profound uh, teaching on the concept of reward, but so many of us think that the reward is this kind of ambiguous thing that'll happen either when we die and, and go to be with Christ in our, in our spirit, or perhaps some point in eternity we're going to get some kind of reward. But as I'm going to come back to in a little bit later, It is very interesting to note that the theology of reward that is taught in the New Testament is specifically connected to us in our glorified bodies, us in our whole physical and spiritual state. The rewards that God has prepared for us are not rewards to be enjoyed merely in our our, what we call the disembodied soulish state. The rewards that God has planned for us are rewards that we will enjoy in in our full composition, soul and body. And we read that this happens when we are with Christ in heaven, and there is the great judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, the giving of rewards, and that takes place after the rapture. But even in 1 Thessalonians, there's a reference to this. We've looked at it already. Turn to chapter 3, verse 11 and 12 and 13, where Paul refers to the, the taking of the church and the presentation of the church in its purity. This is what Paul prays. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we do for you. Now when Paul prays that, 
He is praying for their current life on earth, their current walk, their obedience. But then he says this. Why does he pray that? Verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. What Paul is praying for there is that the current obedience of the Thessalonians would then result in this joyous presentation in the future of the church before God in the church's full purity and holiness. And that is what happens as a result of the resurrection of the dead in Christ and the rapture of those who are living are taken to be with Christ and presented to the Father in full purity. And it's at that point where you have the distribution of rewards, and it's also at that point you have the marriage supper of the Lamb. The book of Revelation speaks of that. but We'll get to some of that a little bit later. Now let me get back now to the doctrinal statement because it continues with another section here on the tribulation period. It reads this, We teach that immediately following the removal of the church from the earth, immediately following the resurrection of the dead in Christ and the rapture, the righteous judgments of God will be poured out upon an unbelieving world, and that these judgments will be climaxed by the return of Christ in glory to the earth. At that time, the Old Testament and tribulation saints will be raised, they'll be resurrected, and the living will be judged. This period includes the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. Now, this section deals more specifically with what we will cover when we get into 1 Thessalonians 5, which will be next Sunday. But let me put this again on a a graph so we can see the, the chronology here. As I said, we have the church age. Now that is followed by a period called the tribulation. It's called by different terms, by different writers and in different contexts. Jacob's distress, it can be called the day of the Lord, as Paul will refer to it in 1 Thessalonians 5. We call it the tribulation, the great tribulation. And this is when God punishes the nations, as we're going to see in 1 Thessalonians 5, and then later when we get into 2 Thessalonians, we'll see it there as well. It is a punishment of the nations for their rejection of the Messiah and his promise, his offer of the gospel. And as well, it is the revival of Israel. God is not done with Israel. And so we say, when, when will the nation of Israel be turned back to the Lord, when will they get to that point where they will look upon the one whom they have pierced and mourn in repentance? That doesn't happen during the church age. That doesn't happen as a result of the current efforts at the Great Commission. Certainly, there are Jews who do come to believe that Jesus, the historical person of Jesus, is the promised Messiah, but that is not on a national level. On that massive level, That will happen as a result of what is called the tribulation period, as God brings judgment on the nations, even discipline on the the sons of Jacob, the, 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 the Jewish people, but then uses that to bring them to repentance. And this tribulation period will be then 
concluded by the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ when he comes to set up his kingdom here on earth. Look for just a moment at 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul refers to this day of tribulation, and he says this. Let's begin in verse 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And when they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Speaking of the judgment. Now there's one more section in the doctrinal statement that I wanted to read that is helpful for us to understand the sweep of, of uh, future things. And it is under the section entitled, The Second Coming in the Millennial Reign. It reads this way, We teach that after the tribulation period, Christ will come to earth to occupy the throne of David and establish his messianic kingdom for a thousand years on the earth. During this time, the resurrected saints will reign with him over Israel and all the nations of the earth. This reign will be preceded by the overthrow of the Antichrist and the false prophet and the removal of Satan from the world. We teach that the kingdom itself will be the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel to restore them to the land that they forfeited through their disobedience. The result of their disobedience was that Israel was temporarily set aside, but will again be awakened through repentance to enter into the land of blessing. And we teach that this time of our Lord's reign will be characterized by harmony, justice, peace, righteousness, and long life, and will be brought to an end with the release of Satan. And that gets into the events at the end of the millennial kingdom, and we won't get into that. But if we look now at the timeline here of prophetic events, we see this. The beginning of the church in Acts 2, leading up to the resurrection, rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians 4. That then begins the tribulation period, a time of tremendous judgment upon the face of the earth, the renewal of the the Israelite people, culminating in the second coming of Christ, And then you have the thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth, a reign of righteousness, as we will one day see this world ruled by the righteous ruler and administered in perfection. So that is a summary of what we teach. Now, just a statement about the what we teach doctrinal statement. Notice it's entitled, What We Teach. That means we as elders are harmonious in our view of these future eschatological things. It means that as you will ask questions and go to different classes, this is what you're going to hear. This is also the doctrinal statement of the Master's Seminary. But as it pertains to Grace Community Church, you obviously, you probably have interacted with people who wouldn't, wouldn't be able to articulate this, or maybe who even disagree with it. Does that mean you can't become a member here? And the answer to that is, no, you can still become a member. This is what we teach. And certainly we hope that with time, as we expound the Scriptures, that you would see what the Scriptures teach on these things. But you don't have to line up 100% to these details to be a part of the family here, to be part of this community. 
and to enjoy the, the benefits of the ministry here. But obviously, it is our desire that you would, you would listen to the teaching and you would study the Scriptures and come to see as we're convinced that these things are so. Now, question number two. If Christians will not be on the earth when many of the events of these prophecies occur, why are those details important to us? And, and you know, this is somewhat of the malaise that we see today in the church at large, that prophecy is considered to be one of those things that really doesn't matter. It's in what we call, or what some call the adiaphora, the things of indifference. We can be indifferent on matters of prophecy. It's not a big deal. There's no, there's no significance to it in the present day life. So why do we need to talk about these details? Why is it important? Let me give you two major reasons why it is important that come right out of 1 Thessalonians even. First of all, it is for our hope. Hope is a virtue. And in fact, it is one of the triad, uh, triad virtues that we read of often in the New Testament, faith, hope, and love. It is a virtue. It is necessary for living the Christian life. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians, what do we read of this world? Even as the Thessalonians, in their context, faced, what do we read of this world? It is a world that is marked by hostility. You can look at 1 Thessalonians 1.6. The Thessalonians came to faith in, in spite of the hostilities and opposition of their fellow countrymen. And that only continued once they were in the church. It is a world that is marked by persecutions. We see that of the Thessalonians as well. That they, in their current life, as, as Paul writes to them, they were those who received the word and endured the same sufferings as other churches. This life is a life of persecutions. It is also a life of hopelessness. You could even see that at the beginning of this section in chapter 4, verse 13, when Paul talks about death, and he, he talks about those who are not Christians who mourn as those who have no hope. Those are the kinds of things that mark this world. Hostility, persecutions, and hopelessness. So what is the need? The need is for hope. The need is for expectation. The need is for comfort and encouragement. And these things come through revelation of God's future redemptive activities. And I would say this, that one of the reasons you have a lot of hopelessness, even among Christians today, is that their focus has become so, uh, so consumed with the present experience that they have lost sight of what is coming. They've lost sight of the, of, of the promise of the resurrection and the rapture. They've lost sight of the fact that Jesus will come to rule this world. There will be the administration of perfect righteousness. Those kinds of issues are very, very important. In fact, we even saw that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, didn't we? At the end of verse 18, after Paul teaches on these things, he then gives this challenge. He says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. It gives us hope, and we need hope. And I think as we look at the world around us, I think as we see what is happening, this is a very good time for the church. It is a very good time for Christians right now. 
to have their perspectives purified by the loss of security in the structures of this world, particularly in the structures of the West. We're beginning to see that all of the promises that we so often cling to in this present world are but a facade that can be removed very, very easily. We see the loss of of security and so many different things, and that is all very, very good for us. And it teaches us that we must place our confidence in the teaching on future things. That is what gives us our hope. But it also is important for our holiness. This world is filled with darkness and immorality. We're going to get into that uh, in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. But what is the great need? Paul is going to say this in chapter 5, verse 6. There's a need for alertness, and there's a need for self-control, and there's a need for edification in the present moment. And what does that come from? That comes from a, a, a greater clarity on things to come. It impacts our holiness even today. To know what is coming, to know the, the, the details of God's future activities, helps us today in our walk and in our worship. In fact, think of it this way. Futuristic prophecy has a similar function for the Christian as historical narrative. Now, when you read the Old Testament, you are reading of an experience that you never lived, nor will you ever. It's in the past. In fact, you have in the Bible a significant amount of historical narrative that is centuries removed from us. So the question is, why do we need historical narrative? Why do we need it? We need historical narrative in order to remember. In order to remember. And that remembrance is so important for our worship and our walk today. Again, just think of this. Why do you need to, live, to, to read about Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years? That was millennia ago. You'll never do that. Why do you need to, live, to, to read that? And, and Paul, Paul even says himself in, in Romans chapter 15 and 1 Corinthians 10 that these things were written for our instruction. Why do we need historical narratives? The answer is to remember for the sake of worship and walk in the present time. Understand prophecy is the same. It has the same function for us. But instead of describing details, which we will never experience, that happened hundreds of years ago, prophecies give us details of experiences, particularly think of the tribulation period, details which we will not experience either. But they function in the same way. These details of the future give us the anticipation or expectation that we need in order to worship and to walk in the future, or in the present. So in light of that, the next time someone says, well, we really don't need prophecy, we have enough in the exhortations that come to us in Scripture, then challenge that person and say, do we need the historical narratives? We never lived them either. So why are they important to us? Why are they important to us? And we would all undoubtedly say they are, and it is because they help us in the present time to worship and to walk. 
Question three. Since the prophecy of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4 was given for moral purposes to comfort and encourage, shouldn't we refrain from taking its details literally and establishing from that chronology? And that is a common question that is asked. How how do we relate to prophetic details? Especially in 1 Thessalonians 4, you have that very clear exhortation, verse 18, comfort one another with these words. And so we, we have this tendency to say, well, because it's for moral purposes, we cannot draw from that moral exhortation doctrinal clarity. We cannot draw from these, these moral sections that deal with imperatives for how to live. We cannot draw from that a lot of doctrinal detail. Many interpreters, in fact, when you read many commentaries, in fact, on 1 Thessalonians 4, this is a common response. They'll give a warning ahead of time saying, remember, this is for a moral purpose of comfort and encouragement. Do not take these details too literally. Do not take the sequence too literally. And so literal interpretation of a text like 1 Thessalonians 4 is just categorically rejected. In fact, it kind of falls into a, a, uh, a common refrain that is not voiced but is implied. If you don't like the message, just call it poetry or apocalyptic. You know, if you don't like to take something seriously in the Bible, just call it poetry. And then all the details are automatically put into fuzzy land. You know, how much doctrine can you draw from poetry? Well, let me just respond to that very quickly. First of all, has Paul moved into poetry or into some kind of different dimension of language in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, or even into chapter 5? And the answer to that is no. His language is the same as in the previous chapters of this letter. He hasn't started off into some kind of allegory of of the future. His language maintains its concrete, specific nature. Secondly, notice or remember what we already discussed back in verse 15, that as he begins this section on the resurrection and the rapture, he specifically says, calling attention to the seriousness of this, he says, this we say to you by the word of the Lord. This is serious revelation. Take note. Pay attention. Then he says in his discussion on the resurrection and the rapture, he uses terms that speak of sequence. He talks about what comes first and then. And so as we went through that text, he gives step-by-step instructions. It's in the language itself. It's not something that we've imposed on it. Paul himself uses words to show sequence. Moreover, notice in verse 18, if you look at verse 18 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, notice what Paul says, and this is important. He does not say, encourage one another with this message. He doesn't say, encourage one another with this idea. He says, encourage one another with these words, plural, which indicates details. He's not just saying you have, you know, just take the big idea from this and run with it. Use the big idea to encourage one another about 
your present life in light of what's going to happen in the future. No, he says, take these details. Take these words. Take these descriptions and use these things at a very detailed level to encourage one another. And finally, one final thing here. Like I said, it is often that scholars will approach this text and say, its whole purpose is moral. Don't take doctrinal details from it. But is that what we do with other texts that are like that? And the answer is no. In fact, one of the greatest Christological texts, you can write this down, we won't go there, but you know it, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Remember we, that great text that we call the kenosis text because of a Greek verb that's used there, of how Christ, though being equal with God, did not consider equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Now, that text comes in the context of moral exhortation. Paul's primary purpose for including specifically verses 5 to 11 is to exhort the Philippians to defer to one another above their own interests. It is a moral text. It's a text about being selfless, But in the midst of that text, Paul includes rich doctrine about the person of Christ that we certainly look to to establish very important doctrinal details about our Christology. So even though a text has moral moral primacy does not mean it has its, its doctrinal details are somehow ambiguous and unimportant. All right. Number four, why is the resurrection of believers so important? Aren't we already glorified the moment we die and our souls go to be with Christ? That's a good question. We, in fact, that, that's something that we take great comfort from when, we know, when, when believers die. We know immediately that they are in perfection, enjoying sweet fellowship with the Lord. So isn't that enough? Why this emphasis on the resurrection. Well, a few notes here to, to keep in mind. First of all, understand that much of Christianity has been impacted by a philosophical worldview called Platonic dualism. Now, you may not have heard of that before, but you have been impacted by it. It's a very widespread philosophical view within the Western world. Platonic dualism. And Platonic dualism contends that the material realm is inherently inferior and even corrupt. That anything that is attached to the material world is going to be out of necessity corrupted. And so all our problems that we experience in life, sin, suffering, all has to do with this material realm. And so salvation, according to Christians who have been influenced by Platonic dualism, ultimate salvation, final salvation, is believed to be the emancipation of the soul from the material world. We can finally be done with the material and just live in the realm of the spiritual. We don't need a body. We don't need material realm. We don't need anything physical. We are just with the Lord in our spiritual component. 
But that's not the New Testament teaching. We can look at the New Testament teaching on the resurrection, and it's important. Importance it very clearly teaches a future resurrection. We saw that here in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. We look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ in particular. Why was it important for him to rise from the dead? And we see from those truths that spirit-only existence for man is not the ideal. Now, you can write these texts down. Uh, you, I won't go to them because of time right now. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Write that one down. Paul talks about being in this earthen tent and his desire to be in the tent that is made from heaven. And in that text, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 10, he makes it very clear that it is not the ideal to be just in our soul, uh, in, in existence in our soul apart from our body. And an even more closely related text is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5.23. We can look there because it's in our letter. 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Notice what Paul says here when he describes ultimate sanctification. Now may the God, and, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul very clearly teaches that ultimate sanctification has to include our bodies or it is not complete. Wayne Grudem says it this way, Our resurrection bodies will show the fulfillment of God's perfect wisdom in creating us as human beings who are the pinnacle of his creation and the appropriate bearers of his likeness and image. In these resurrection bodies, we will clearly see humanity as God intended it to be. So how do we understand then the state of the deceased believer before his resurrection? After death and before resurrection. How do we understand that? Well, we we looked at this already a little bit in our previous study of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians that the soul is not asleep. Some have, such as Seventh-day Adventists, have taught of a state of being called soul sleep, that after you die, your soul enters a period of unconsciousness until you're finally resurrected. And that is a misunderstanding, as we discussed, of Paul's use of a euphemism, a figure of speech there in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's not soul sleep. But rather, we would describe it this way. The state of the soul after death, before resurrection, is a conscious, disembodied existence with Christ in heaven. It is a state of spiritual perfection wherein all striving against sin and suffering has has ceased. So in that sense, there, there certainly is Glory. In our disembodied state, if we die before the rapture, before the coming of the Lord to take his church, we will be conscious and we will be in glory. Our striving will have ceased. However, that is not the ultimate state for us. But just as an example of what this will look like, Think of Philippians 1 verse 23, where Paul talks about this state 
of being with Christ. He says, I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart, speaking of depart from his body and from this earth, and be with Christ, for that is very much better. That is very much better. So, now how do we look at that again on the timeline of, of, of history with respect to our own personal lives? You could look at it this way. If, if you die, you will, your body will lie in the ground and it will undergo decay. But that decay will be reversed in a supernatural, miraculous way at the resurrection that is discussed in 1 Thessalonians 4. The immediate period is what we call the intermediate state. Theologians will call it the intermediate state. It is a state of sinless, conscious existence in heaven with Christ, but without completion. Without completion. doesn't mean that you're still sinful. It just means you're incomplete. And that completion will only come when you finally receive back your glorified bodies. Now, Rodney submitted a question to me, and he said, what age will I be? <laughs> and he said, how, high, how tall will I be? And, uh, you know, those kinds of details. I think Dave Beerhorse said he wants to be 6'6". Is that what you want to be? Where are you, Dave? Well, there's questions like that that we don't know, obviously, but we will receive that body, and it will be glorious. And there's a, an, another thing that I've already mentioned that is important to this particular reality of our future glorified state in both soul and body. And it is the enjoyment of the rewards. The enjoyment of the rewards. Now, it will be reward enough to be done striving against sin and suffering. It will be reward enough to be with Christ even in our souls, in our soul state. But that is not all the glories that God has planned for us. And the greater glory will come when he gives to us that perfect body that perfectly, together with our soul, shows the image of God in us, and God's beautiful creation and how he has individually woven and shaped each one of us. And it is then at that point where the future rewards will be given to be enjoyed not just in our souls, but in our bodies. And what that all means, obviously, we don't know. We just know that it will be. Important text to look at is 2 Corinthians 5, 9 to 10, and I'll let you read that uh, on its own. And I think maybe I can get through one question real quickly here because it is, uh, it is an important one. Let me see here. Here's the question. If only church-age believers are in view in the resurrection described in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 17, what about the resurrection of Old Testament saints? Actually, this is a very complex question, and I think I'm going to have to leave this, uh, but we'll find a way to come back to it, uh, whether that's next week uh, or thereafter, because the issue of resurrection is 
is a, a big issue when it comes to these stages of the resurrection. And a, a lot of people, when they, they read First Thessalonians chapter 4, they instantly assume it includes a resurrection of everyone at the same time or something akin to that. And we have to work through that, and there are some important texts to look through, so I won't get into that, but it's coming. We'll just decide when, when that answer will come, all right? Now, with this all said, again, I want to come back to the purpose for which we study prophecy, and it is for hope, uh, and it is for holiness, and I want to close with, what, how, with how the Apostle John writes about this, and we'll close with this text that helps us remember why it is so important to treat prophecy as a priority. In 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, we read this, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. We need this teaching. And uh, I pray that even our study here and commissioned over these last several weeks is contributing to that end. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you have not left us without a clear testimony that you are sovereign and that the future has been fully determined. You have marked out your plan of redemption and everything that we experience in the present is working in complete consistency with your plan. We are thankful that You have not left this world to continue in its current course unendingly. But there is a time when you will bring judgment and you will right all the wrongs and injustices and bring righteousness and peace to this world. We're also thankful that before that time of judgment and wrath is poured out upon this earth, that you will send your Son to rescue us, to bring us to heaven for that wonderful time of presentation when we, in our glorified state in both soul and body, will experience complete perfection and will receive the wonderful gifts and awards, rewards that you have planned for us. We ask that that reality would translate into our present day worship and walk 
that we would reflect often and continually on these things, that you would make us to be like the Thessalonians who became an example, who became an example particularly in their constant watchfulness as they awaited your son, Jesus, who comes to rescue us from the wrath to come. Make this the thought and anticipation of our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.